Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 966 with Sam Cayucci. And I think the thing I learned was everything has a reason. Every drill we do, every movement we do, there has to be a purpose in why we do it. And beyond the purpose, it has to transfer to the field. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. For restaurants, large costs can pop up fast, but the traditional loan process is way too slow. And that's why you need to know about Zinch. Zinch is a direct lender that makes the financial process quick, convenient, and accessible. Let me tell you a little bit more about Zinch. They can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days. And all you have to do is just fill out a simple online application and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements. And you can get an approval within 24 hours. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to FinancingThatWorks.com to get pre-qualified and to see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Loans made or arranged pursuant to a California finance lender's law license. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder and CEO of One Huddle, Sam Cayucci. Sam, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm ready to roll, Eric. Dude, I am super excited for this conversation. I have a feeling we might nerd out on human behavior and just like the way we train people and, and habit and all that sort of thing. Um, but before we dive into who you are and what One Huddle is all about, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? What you tolerate, you encourage. What you I, I tolerate, up, you encourage. I grew up playing sports. So if I wasn't doing this, I'd be coaching football somewhere. That's what I always tell people. And sometimes I feel like I am doing that uh, for, good, <laughs> for good or bad, depending on the room I'm in. Yeah. But what you tolerate, you encourage as a leader today. I think more than ever coming out of COVID, it's very easy as a, as a manager to just allow people to do what they want to do. And oftentimes that results in – Missing targets, missing expectations, poor culture, poor team building. So I had a coach a long time ago tell me, you know, when I was coaching a DB drill, coaching football, letting them do it the wrong way. He goes, if you're tolerating it, you're encouraging it. And it's stuck with me ever yeah. since. That kind of reminds me of perception is reality. And especially when it comes to like, like culture. Culture isn't what you write down in a book and put on the shelf. Culture is what's literally happening in this moment. What is, the, what is now? 
What is happening? What are people doing? What are people saying? How are they acting? That's your culture. Yep. And that's kind of what I think of when I think of what you tolerate is what you encourage. Awesome way to get this thing started. And uh, before we get any deeper, I just want to say uh, Jack Gibbons is the reason why we're here. Uh, he called you out. He mentioned you in our, our very recent recording. I think it was a, a week ago today. I talked to Jack and I, I instantly reached out to you guys. You made yourselves available to us. And Jack, what he's doing over at Front Burner Society is pretty impressive. So if he's recommending a technology and a service, I, that I mean that my ears open up. So we're going to dive into it. I um, did a very minimal research on who you guys are and what you're all about. But before we dive into what One Huddle is, I really want to know who are you and how, like, what's the backstory of One Huddle? So what were you doing before One Huddle? Yeah, so I started in the sports industry. I ran training facilities that prepared NFL, Major League Baseball, pro hockey, pro tennis players in the offseason. And I, I managed agent relations. I was responsible for making sure those guys paid when they were supposed to. <laughs> so I was always in a business development sales role. And I did that, uh, ran a facility out of South Florida. We trained over 500 professional athletes over four or five years. And I uh, moved to the Northeast, made a few more stops, all in the sports performance world, ran a big franchise business model called the Parisi Speed School. Also, NFL Combine Prep. We had, uh, I ran franchise sales and grew Parisi from 40 plus locations to close to 100. Wow. And, it was, I would say, really the journey from all the stops along the way in my final stop, seeing 100-plus franchise businesses challenged with how do you find great talent? How do you onboard them quickly? How do you continuously develop them? And in the fitness world, talent leaves pretty quick, too. You know, you get a great coach, great trainer. They're doing a great job. They're on fire, and then... Six months later, they realize I can just buy, buy some ladders and some hurdles and put them in a trunk and go to a park and run my own business. So yeah. it was a real churn business that was, a, that was a challenge. And again, I spent my career around the brightest minds in sports performance. These guys were focused on how do you take an athlete. Elite athletes. How do you make, you know, how do you get Frank Gore, who was the, one of the first combine players I coached, how do you get Frank from a 4.6 to a 4.5? Because that tenth of a second is millions of dollars in upfront wow. cash. And I was working in this environment where performance mattered, tenths of seconds mattered. And I also was running a business. I said, you know, why is it that when it comes to corporate training, workforce development, why is it that the things that are being done feel like they're so stuck in yesterday? The you hire a new employer, you throw a manual at them and hope they read it. Right. You hire a new employee, you create these videos that oftentimes nobody watches. They definitely don't retain much of it. Uh, or you know, the people in charge from a human resource perspective have no formal classic education or training in how learning works. Yeah. And it's not their fault, but it's the it's a fault of the system. And that's really what got my wheels spinning. And like any good entrepreneur. A, a lot of tequila and late nights and Starbucks <laughs> runs later. You know, you have this idea and that became one of them. I think also, too, we're just in this moment of time uh, in just like history where we're just learning so much, especially in the world of human behavior and understanding how we tick and like what's going on in this brain of ours. And the more we learn, the more we can basically go with the resistance instead of like and just like like the more we learn about how what is business right it's 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 relationships it's people it's it's this understanding how people work and working with people so the more we figure out about the human behavior and and like the, what the, we want to do naturally 
we can lean into that, right? And I think as we learn more, like we're just getting better and better and better at business. And these resources weren't even available to us 15 years ago for some people. The restaurant industry especially, we're so notoriously behind the curve. Um, I am curious, you, you were working, so when you were with Parisi Speed School, you were getting into this world of, of uh, recruiting fine talent and onboarding people and training them. But beyond that, you're also training, like physically training athletes. I'm, I'm curious, does that relate to what you do? Was, were there lessons on human behavior and how to train people? Uh, did you start geeking out to like, like you said, like milliseconds makes millions, like the difference can make millions of dollars, whatever you said. So what did you learn about training people early on in your career? And just like the, the things we can, like, I don't know, you've got to be like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that. Yeah. Again, I was, I was lucky enough to be around coaches who had a lot of letters after their name is what I would always say. They had PhDs in exercise phys and kinesiology and sports biomechanics and sports science. Uh, some of the first coaches came from IMG Academy. And for those who uh, follow the sports world, I mean, some of the brightest minds in speed and agility and performance came out of IMG in Bradenton, Florida. And I think the thing I learned was that you know, every, everything has a reason. Every drill we do, every movement we do, there has to be a purpose in why we do it. Mm -hmm. And beyond the purpose, it has to transfer to the field. So I used to deal, we used to deal this, with this a lot with pro athletes. They'd come in after a long season, banged up. We'd have to get them in with the physical therapist. They'd get Cairo. They'd get massage therapy. They'd get in the, you know, in, in the hot tub, in the pool. They'd be, get with our chef, and then they'd get on the field and get back to lifting and lifting and running. And oftentimes you'd hear these players be banged up because they were in programs that did a lot of stuff because they thought that's the way it's always been done. Be, you know, we'd work with a pro baseball player, Manny Ramirez, and he'd say, you know, why am I benching? What does benching have to do with me hitting 50 homers a year? Or you'd get a pitcher who'd come in like Dontrell Willis back in the day, and he'd say, you know, wh why am I squatting? Why am I doing these things? And it was an issue of transfer. That was something that's always stuck with me. Anything we do in training has got to transfer to the field for the player. And the parallels are the same when it comes to corporate training, when it comes to inside of a restaurant. If, you have a, if you're working with a bartender and you have to think about service training or you're thinking about skill training or something tactical, if what you're doing doesn't transfer and, and enhance their performance in the moment, we have to challenge why we do it, and if we're if we need to cut that stuff out, and we need to enhance, you know, we need to focus in on the work that makes us better. So I think the best coaches in the world are always pruning their drills. They're always uh, they're trafficking in motivation at a high level to try to squeeze just a little bit out of their players to put them in positions that um, you know oftentimes aren't comfortable, but because of the level of trust they have accumulated over time with that player they get the player's best performance consistently over time. So there's a bunch of stuff in there, but I think consistent focus on transfer is a big one. Consistently focusing on transfer. So uh, the other thing I heard too is like they have to understand why. So like you mentioned Manny Ramirez, why am I benching? Pitcher, why am I squatting? So once they understand the end result and why these how these exercises are going to result in better performance and what that means to them and why that benefits them. But the is, did, was did I hear that correctly? Just the importance of why in training, like yeah. this is. And again, it, it sounds cliche now that you know Simon Sinek has made this start with why explosion, yeah, yeah. but it's yeah. true. Leading with why early 
so that, especially with a pro athlete who's looking at what the impact on their career is, to explain to them why we're doing this drill. You know, hey, Eric, today we're going to be doing lateral movement. Let me tell you why we're doing lateral movement. You're a defensive back. I know you're saying you don't move laterally that much. You're going backward. You're going forward. But let me tell you why we do that. And then breaking down how lateral speed is a foundation for linear speed. You're like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, if I have better lateral movement, my hips are stronger, my hips are tighter. So now when I do turn around to take off, I'm not going to pop something. Yeah. Instead of what traditionally happens is, hey, Eric, we're going to do lateral movement today. Get on the line. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, what about the psychology? I'm curious about that. Did you learn anything about the psychology of training? I, I learned that um, – so there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, I could – you know, yeah. it's where do you start psychology of training? You know, I think you know, working from the best coaches create a certain environment. I think the coaches do a few things. Coaches create great environments first, and those environments are – spaces where they're connecting to why a player is here they're using storytelling to inspire and and to um, and and to get the attention of players Um, but they're also not afraid to make things difficult struggle failure these are critical ingredients in optimal performance Mm. if you want to enhance again if you use weightlifting as an example if you keep lifting the same weight every day you go to the gym you're not going to get any better yeah you might burn some calories but you're not going to get stronger right yeah it's it's through failure and through struggle and through tearing things down that you build things up Mm -hmm. better so that one of the big pieces of the psychology of learning and the psychology of coaching is that struggle is not a nice to have it's a critical ingredient in the development process. If you want to make people better, if you want to enhance retention of learning, if you want to create an optimal performance environment, which, by the way, any restaurant in the world should be thinking about how do I create an optimal performance environment every day, you have to um, put people into this zone of failure that um, allows them to fail enough to continue to be challenged while at the same time, not there's like a range of too difficult creates an ins- a disincentive. Well, that's what I was going to ask Neth. My follow up was, how do you find that balance? Because if you're just some tyrant, some a hole that like nobody wants to be around, because you're constantly just pushing, pushing, and not settling for you know status quo. I mean, I think there's got to be a balance of like I recognize that you achieved this. What like well, like what is your advice for finding that balance? And this is where when I was thinking about what do we create, what do I create? When, when I was building one huddle, I thought, hey, what is something out there that when you fail, you're okay with it? Like, what is something that when you struggle, you keep coming back for more? And I, mean, I think it, I, you want to finish. It's a game, it's right? A game. Yeah, I was going to say game. gamification. And yeah. the best games do create this zone of struggle, this zone of tension, this zone of failure, where as you struggle through it coming out on the other side means a lot more. Mm. If a game is too easy, you delete it off your phone, you quit. If it's too hard, you quit because it's impossible to win. Yeah. So the best games are designed in this way where you're allowing a little bit of success uh, and you're allowing people to recognize and identify and know that success. And it's the same thing on the field in sports. You have yeah. to, Players have to see improvement. Think about any game. I don't know how many gamers there are listening today, but if any game you play when you first start, it's baby steps. It's like, here's how you pick up the gun. 
you know, if you're playing like a shooting game and then like, here's how you open a door. Here's how you aim. Here's how you zoom in. Like now, now go play, go try it. And then it's, it's like almost like baby steps in the very beginning, but that's also what training is like when you're hiring somebody on, it's just like, here's a station. Here's how you put the cheese on the burger, you know, and like slide it down. But as you master that, you start getting, you, you learn new skills, you level up. I don't want to get ahead of you um, in what we're going to be talking about. But, I mean, does this sound familiar? Like- yeah. yeah. I mean, there's beginner, intermediate, advanced, the way we always think about it, even in coaching, again, coming on the field or even today at one huddle. And in that beginner zone, it's about, it's about reps and it's about understanding and knowledge acquisition. Kind of phase one is knowledge. So you mentioned picking up the gun. Yeah. That is teaching. You're teaching people what the rules of the game are early. Yeah. yeah. These are the boundaries. This is how it's going to work. If you touch this, this is going to go wrong. Yeah. If you do this, you're going to get some extra points. Yeah. So yeah, early on, it's you have to you have to start to build that habit loop, and then you can begin to amp up difficulty. Yeah. Accordingly. Yeah. But environments that are too difficult too soon, you know, bad games. They generally create a demotivated worker, and environments that are too easy for too long generally create stagnation. So. What were you doing before One Huddle that kind of like – take me to like a couple of years before because you guys started One Huddle in 2015, right? So yep. you're, you're eight years into this. What, what was happening just before 2018 that – or sorry, 2015 that got you kind of the wheels turning? Like when were you – when would the vision for One Huddle start to come into your frame? Sure. I started consulting Sports Performance Center. So I was traveling the world. I was doing consulting for speed and agility programs and – I was running sales and training development programs. So companies would bring me in to build out their sales development program, lay out sales strategy, implement CRM. So I was, you know, sleeves rolled up in the weeds on how do you coach salespeople. Okay. And to be honest with you, I mean, I would, I would come in to a brand. I drop in. I do the two to three day thing. Everybody would be jacked up. They'd be excited. You know, you'd play the Glen Gary, Glenn Ross skit, and you'd have all these videos, and you'd lay out the program, and you'd leave. And I'd come back next quarter, and I'd have to start all over again. Mm. The systems fell apart because the management didn't enforce them. They had churn because of culture. And you know what? I came in and did the same presentation again. And I just got tired of it. It wasn't going anywhere. I mean, I was making money. The brands were you know, getting better, but it was mostly because of the product on the field. And their business operation was probably the downside. They probably could have grown a lot faster if they kept people, developed them, got people doing the right thing the right way the right time every time and reinforcing yeah, it, but it people. wasn't happening. Yeah. And th- there's this churn and burn business you know, model that exists in a lot of industries today, and th- there was no different in the sports performance world. And I got fed up. And I think that's where every great startup founder story i've heard since they feel the pain (laughs) yeah because i didn't see myself as a tech guy i know nothing i knew nothing about Mm -hmm. tech i woke up one day well that's kind of what i noticed like you kind of have this like left field like like sports training uh sales i saw training and sales and sales management uh and then out of left field you come out of like you know uh service as a software and I'm like, how? Do, but I do see that you have a, a history of training. You've been like your whole career, 20 years of training people in the vertical of elite, like high performance athletes, which is I think makes it even more impressive because 
you're training the best of the best, the most driven individuals that were, were like you said, like the smallest improvements make a huge difference. So I see the translation. I see how you could come from that and go into something like one huddle. Uh, so you mentioned something really, I think that kind of stood out to me is that you, you're frustrated because you'd go in, you train the managers or you train the people, but then the managers wouldn't keep up with it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest pain points in the restaurant industry is you, there aren't any systems for keeping the managers on track. So there's checklists for the line staff, but there aren't checklists for the managers and the, and the, the things at the higher level to make sure that we're, we're doing our job consistently to hold people accountable. What's you're shaking your head. What's going through your mind? Yeah, it feels like, especially in the restaurant industry, this happens in other categories as well, though. This is a, this is a workforce problem. You know, this is not a one industry problem. It happens in retail. It happens in sports, the sports industry, which is where we started. My first sale was Monumental Sports in D.C. Our second was Madison Square Garden. Our third was the San Francisco 49ers. And then from there, we went into hospitality and restaurants and retail. So this is not, I've identified this problem in multiple places. And Companies that want to be high-performing need to turn managers into a very specific type of leader. And the concept of management is so outdated. I mean, we could sit here and riff on where management came from 110 years ago when you know there was uh, the, the need was literally to put people in a box to do a job, and you had a manager watching them. Yeah. Controlling labor. Control, command and control, right? That is not a development function. No. That's fear. <laughs> so this concept of manager, you know, we'll say at one huddle, we say to clients all the time, the best managers are leaders, the best leaders are coaches. I was just going to say coach. Yeah. And the coach, they, they traffic in uh, development, not training. They focus on enhancement. They focus on taking you someplace you can't get on your own. And that is such a awesome opportunity with frontline you know, the frontline manager in the restaurant industry that oftentimes brands miss because the C-suite goes over the manager and constantly tries to communicate with the frontline employee and or they go over the frontline employee and try to go straight to the guest and the customer. The And we all know the, the shortest distance to, just like the shortest distance to the sale, the shortest distance to the relationship is the frontline employee to the guest mm-hmm. and the shortest distance to affect them is the frontline manager. And there's just not enough talent development programming, like you said, focused on building better coaches in the restaurant industry. You know, Gallup came out with a study right before COVID. And, you know, Gallup does, what, 40,000 studies every six months they roll out. And this was their biggest study on the, uh, the state of the workforce right before COVID. And they, fa- they made the claim that only 15% of global workers wake up every day and say they're, quote, excited, engaged to go to work. That's not good not, enough. <laughs> and again, it's not, a, it's not yeah. a surprising stat that it's bad. And it really hasn't changed that much. You go back 30, 40 years, employee engagement has always been pretty poor. But it was the lowest it's ever been on record right before COVID. At the end of the study, they come out and they say, here are all the ways you can affect Employee engagement, pay, wait, you know, higher wage, uh, healthcare, growth, growth, you know, growth, and so on and so on and so forth. The number one that 
the number one reason they came out, number one way to inspire effect employee engagement was uh, developing managers into coaches. Mm. And the rest of the study came out with this perspective of what do workers want? What do people want to come to work? And it doesn't matter if they're a low wage frontline worker in back of house, you know, or they're a corner office kid that just graduated from NYU. Does not matter. Workers today want, expect, need, desire coaching. Mm. They want to be developed. Yeah. It's, it's, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you have your physiological needs, then you have your security needs, then you have the being seen need. Am I valued for the work that I'm doing? But right after that, it's like, what's next? Like, I need to feel like I'm personally growing. And that's just below self-actualization and finding your purpose in life. And that's the, the, the higher you focus on that pyramid of, you know, feeding the needs of your employees, like security and, you know, your physiological needs, you know, shelter and food, that's baseline. Like, don't focus that, that. We focus on baseline right now. Like, here's your paycheck. Here's your insurance. Next, you know. And, but if you start focusing on coaching, like, and like, I think it takes time. It's, and it's up to, to the individual to figure out what their, their their purpose in life is, right? But the next thing that we can control is growth. Developing people to develop your people, right? Developing coaches to develop your frontline employees, and that's what I'm hearing from you. And that requires frameworks. Yeah. Let's jump back to the sports world. I mean, there's a reason that certain teams consistently win championships in know, college football, for example. Now, I signed at Alabama, big Alabama fan, so a little biased. <laughs> However, you look at some of the best coaches in, uh, in their programs, and they build these frameworks to where if they lost a coach to another opportunity— the next coach coming in isn't coming in with their whole playbook. What are they coming into? They're coming into a system yeah. that already exists. Now, you could obviously bring your own spin on the role. They're not saying, hey, new offensive coordinator at Alabama, don't come in. Come in with everything fresh. Uh, they're giving them a little bit of space to put their personal touch on it. But this is our practice structure. Yeah. This is... These are our core values. Yeah. These are our standards. That's culture. That's ritual. You can't break. You can't mess with that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that as you talk about how do we build better coaches in the restaurant industry, I think it starts with organizations making the decision to invest in development programs. Let's look at budgets. I mean, let's ask, let's ask a brand, how much of your training and development budget do you have allocated for manager development? How much do you have allocated to frontline development? Not many know the answer to that question. Yeah. I would we're I mean, in my mind, it would make sense to focus on manager development because that would trickle down. Correct. Yeah, I mean again, where do you start? I mean, yeah, you start with coaching the coaches. Yeah. And from there, then you can focus on frontline. But my point is there's a lot of brands out there we talk to who know all their food costs. They got that stuff down to the yeah. cent. But when you double click on the training and development budget, they say, Oh yeah, we have a oh, we have a learning management software, we're good. That's not that's that's like a strength coach. That'd be like a strength coach trying to have a treadmill. That doesn't do nothing. Yeah. Now there's 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 got, again. This tells a lot to me about brands with where they're focused when it comes to coaching. So it's got to be balanced. They know the budget, but they don't know where it's going. Yeah, I mean, Basically. yeah, I think they know where it's going, but I also don't think that because they don't know where it's going, they don't have. It's not an initiative for them uh, beyond just maybe. The so- having a software in place or a check the box. I mean, co- coaching coaches is not a once a year event. Mm. It's not the it's not the annual 
you know, we're going to fly everybody out for a three-day summit together and party. That's not what it is. It's a consistent, continuous initiative that's focused on arming managers with tools so that they can turn around and coach their people appropriately. Because when you hear workers leave, they don't, the old adage, they're not quitting the brand, they're quitting the boss. That tells me if I only had a few bucks to invest into a brand, where would I focus it? I would, I would bring all my, I would focus it completely on um, enhancing the performance of my management team. Is that what one huddle is designed to do? Is that the objective of one of one all? Cause it goes down to the frontline employee. Yeah. I mean, we would position ourselves as a coaching and development platform okay. first. Okay. And you know, the mission of our coaching staff at one huddle is to build better, build better coaches. So are you gamifying the, co- the, the management training at that level, or are you gamifying down more towards the, the front line employee level? Yeah, so there's, there's two parts to what we're doing. The first is uh, One Huddle is a game, yeah, and it allows an organization to take anything that their people need to know and quickly, on their own, convert it into these two- to three-minute uh, skill-building games. So that event gets out to the front line, which means you can train, you can train a front-of-house or a back-of-house person on everything from onboarding to safety compliance to tonight's menu. Okay. So I think, I think that's a good teaser. We're going to take a first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to really break down like what huddle, what one huddle is and how it works. When you're a restaurant, a lot can happen suddenly, and the unexpected can be expensive. For example, when you're short-staffed during the busy month, you can't delay hiring, and the slower season still comes with bills to pay. Or how about when your appliances break down or your new location needs more equipment? You have to work fast to keep the kitchen running smooth. You don't have time to wait around for a traditional loan process to get the cash you need. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Zinch, a direct lender that gets businesses like yours. Since 2004, Zinch has made the financing process for small and medium businesses fast, flexible, and inclusive with easy-to-understand solutions. If your restaurant is generating over $10,000 in monthly revenue and has been in business for at least six months, Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days, so much faster than the traditional lenders. To apply, just fill out a simple application form and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements. It's that easy. No drawn-out paperwork to keep track of and no lengthy waiting to see if you are qualified. You'll get a response from Zinch within 24 hours. Plus, Zinch's specialists are just a phone call away. They'll guide you every step of the way and help you choose the terms that best fit your business needs. Save yourself the stress of financing through the bank. Apply for Zinch. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to FinancingThatWorks.com to get pre-qualified and to see how much financing you can get with Zinch. Don't wait. Go to FinancingThatWorks.com today. Loans made or arranged pursuant to a California finance lender's law license. We're back. Um, so you started getting into like actually what is one huddle? How does it work? Uh, so is this what it was from day one or has it, did it evolve to get to this point? Because we're going into eight years in business now. Yeah, I mean, you're here at One Huddle HQ. You see that box over there on the bottom that says sales game? Yeah. That was the first game. Oh, wow. So that's like the prototype. Yeah, it costs a lot to print that. Out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, we're going to turn this into a game. What's a game? Oh, like a, like a board game. So that's where it started. 
And, you know, inside of there is a 500-page manual Jesus. with all the questions if you wanted to be a sales rep for the Washington Wizards, mm-hmm. you know, pop open that book. You got to go back six years here. That's but wild. that was the first version of One Huddle. It was called The Sales Game, and it was a iPad-based game that came with all this other stuff around it. The first, I, the first version was a role-playing game. The idea was... If you're going to build better sales reps, the problem with most training and development programs comes back to transfer because you have to actually do it. Like you want to be a great pitcher, you have to throw the ball. Yeah. You want to be a great hitter, you got to hit the ball. Yeah. You want to be a great sales rep, you got to be in selling situations. Yeah. And I think you, you think of servers, right? That's what servers are in the business of. But yeah, it's actually delivering hospitality and service. But what a great server does is sells, upsells. They get that check going up. Yeah, so the first version was a multiplayer role-play game. And the idea was a sales team could put everybody in the room at the same time. So you could put you know, 15 people for a stand-up and break up into teams. And the game is a 10 to 30-minute high-speed. Think Cards Against Humanity meets improv. Okay. So that question, sounds like fun. Question pops you got up. me hooked. <laughs> <laughs> question pops up on the screen, and it says your the customer says it costs too much. You got thirty seconds. Go. So one person from one team comes up. One person from the other plays the plays the guest. And they face off. Yeah. The manager now is empowered to give feedback. Mm, the coaching kicks in. So again, why do most managers not role play? Because they're afraid of being exposed. Like that's yeah. an element of it. It's an element that is uncomfortable. What do you mean they're afraid to be exposed? Afraid that they might not know the answer or they might not seem as smart as they think they are or want people to know they are? I think, again, depending on the organization, role-playing is uncomfortable. And I think there are some younger managers who are not comfortable being in the role-play because if they don't do a good job, that's a high-stakes miss Mm. in front of your team. So I think it would be crazy not to think they're thinking a little bit about how they look to their group. They're a little bit uncomfortable. The second is it's hard to make it engaging. And your team, people oftentimes are nervous about public speaking. They might be fine one-on-one, but when you put them in a room to do role-playing, it's uncomfortable. It could be a traumatic event. Yeah. And for those reasons, I said, but at the end of the day, you have to do it. Mm. Because you're either going to role-play in this room as practice or you're going to do it on the cl- on the client or on the guest. Yeah. And that's not good either. So the first version of the game was multiplayer. It empowered the manager to coach in a situation. Every scenario had a right answer and a wrong answer, which let the brand define what is a best practice in this situation. For us specifically in our brand and what we our core values and our beliefs. You got it. So yeah. as you turn over different managers or managers move up or managers, you know, move on, you have a playbook yeah. that is the same everywhere. So that was the first version of the game. Started with multiplayer. It was obviously a box. Turned it into a software. A, a software. Yeah. And after about a year or two of doing it, we started to have companies say, hey, we really love this multiplayer game. But is there any way for people to do it on their own? And I think this has been our success as a as a company now I'm envisioning real quick. I hate to cut you off. There's somebody like role playing on their own, which kind of seems a little funny and silly. If, if, we're, if, if that's the game. So I can see why they'd be curious. Like if, how do you, how do you recreate that digitally? Right. That, that face to face, uh, role playing. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, the, is it, you used another word like um, improv or improv. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so at, around this time, what we started to – now I'm really, you know, deep in research around learning science and talking – putting an advisory board together and had a lot of people around the brand looking at what we're doing and advising us on where to take the product if we really – our focus was performance enhancement. You have to get better. And this was a big differentiator when we would sell against other software. So it would say, this software checks a box and says you know it for the moment, by the way. When you play one huddle, there has to be a performance improvement. The transfer's got to make you better. If it doesn't make you better, I'm not interested in doing it. So when we went from multiplayer to single player, which is now 90% of gameplay on one huddle, happens on mobile, individually, uh, in competition... But managers said to us, it'd be great if people could do it on their own. And uh, I think this was a big part of our success as a software. Aha moment. Is we weren't overbuilding the software. And, you know, for entrepreneurs and leaders out there who know, you know, sometimes when you don't have the the resources, you have to iterate. You, you know, you kind of ready, fire, aim. You build a little and then you sell it. And... Then you learn, and then you build the next layer. It's the lean startup model. So that's what we did. Yeah. You know, I had five or six companies say, we'd love to have a single-player mode. So I, I said, hey, would you love to be on an advisory board for that? I'll, I'll invite you on this advisory board, but we're going to talk about how we do that. And I let our clients build the product. So from that point to today, I say it all the time. I didn't build anything. I just listen to clients. They've told us every step of the way what should happen. Now, we don't always agree. So sometimes we take the feedback and have to give them something they didn't even know they wanted along the way. But we launched a single single player version now where uh, in two to three minutes, players, you know, employees can level up on any topic across the brand they work with. And the coaching part of the single player game is that with one huddle, frontline managers can build games. So on traditional, if you remember back in school, I had to do a bunch of those like Blackboard, e-learning, watch the module, take the quiz things. And I still wake up in the middle of the night traumatized by it. I don't think anybody remembers anything from e-learning. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Now, the problem with e-learning is that there's usually only one person or two people that can build it inside of the brand. So if you're a fast-moving hospitality brand who needs to, you know, menus changing every night, things are changing within your brand constantly, you don't have the ability to create and produce these beautiful 15, 20-minute learning videos and tests and quizzes and assets and get it out in real time. It takes too long. So with our single-player game, one of the things we did was we allowed frontline managers the ability to turn any communication, any menu into a game in minutes. And that has been a huge part of the success. If I look across any of the brands who use OneHuddle today, the, the thing that we're looking at is how we're literally leveling up frontline managers who went from just coaching with words to now using technology to support their coaching efforts and coaching initiatives. Yeah. So I'm a new employee. Like, let's let's role play you and I, right? I get hired. Uh, they say, hey, you're hired. Um, like, take me through the process as a new employee. Like, what what does this process, what does using 100 look like for me, from my perspective? Sure. Yeah, so you would... Um, you download one huddle. It's a you know app on iPhone, Android. We backward support every device. B 
because workers have, you know, not every worker has the iPhone 14, no, nor should they. Right? So uh, you download the app, uh, and when you log in, there will be a series of games that you're greeted by. And those games uh, are generally like your day one games. So what kind of, give me an example of the games I'd see. Yeah, so think of like uh, if you worked at... If you worked at Doghouse, which is like one of our like rock star brands who use the platform. Are they based uh, in California? They're in Pasadena. Uh, I think I've actually had them on the show. Uh, the, the name is unique. The first name, one of the new. Hago? Hago, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Hago's rock star, Kristen, who leads training for them. Uh, so when you get hired at Doghouse, day one, uh, you have to win this 10-level game that covers every part of what it means to work at Doghouse. Okay. And think, again, it's... You have to win level one to unlock level two, level two to unlock level three. Uh, There's a game on Doghouse core values and mission statement. There's a game on the history of the brand. There's a game with headshots identifying the corporate leadership team. Then we're getting into going from brand to product specific. There's a game on the menu. There's a game on the POS and how to use the POS. There's a game on uh, food safety. Uh, so it might be reinforcing any type of they're using ServeSafe or some other food safety program. They'll have a game that's safety and compliance related, game on their benefits, and then you know a, a, maybe a game or two on something. So anything you'd see on the checklist for onboarding somebody, there's a game for you. It, got it, basically. Yeah. So it's, okay, you start with core values, right? So what would that what would that the, a game on core values look like? So I click the first game, mm-hmm. right? I'm the I'm the the new hire. What's the first question I would see? Or an example see, of questions I would see. Yeah, so you would see, you know, in what year was Doghouse founded? Okay. You would see uh, what what is the mission statement? Which of the following is the correct mission statement? So think think like trivia crack or quiz up if you're familiar with like quick burst trivia. Yeah. The game is using trivia as the as the platform. Yeah. So every question is so very timed. much like a card game. Board. You got it. Yeah. Question pops up. Timer starts. You got 15 seconds to answer the question. You know, the question says. Uh, you know, which of the following is a core value of working at Doghouse? And, you know, 10, 9, 8, and you got three or four answer choices. If you get it right, you'll get points. Move on to the next question. If you get it wrong, it'll show you the correct answer, and you can move on. So there's a level of homework involved with this before I show up, right? Because you wouldn't – you'd have to do some research and, and have some study material before you'd be able to take a quiz like that and know the answer. So you ready for the brain science stuff? Okay, yeah. I love the shit. That's totally false. Oh, okay. There's a concept, probably the most powerful. Have you ever heard of like the 10,000 hour rule? Yeah, 10,000 hours to be a master or something. Yeah, like that? so yeah. it was, it was th- this idea of the 10,000 hour rule was, was originally uh, massacred by Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell read this research by a guy named oh, Anders Ericsson. Is that Outliers? Outliers. Yeah, yeah so he, he kind of commercialized this research that came from a guy named Anders Ericsson. He was a, a professor in human science, learning, biomechanics uh, at uh, Florida State University. Yeah. And Anders Ericsson produced mounds of research on learning and skill development, and he popularized a term called uh, desirable difficulties, which said that not only did they find that practice hours matter, but a very specific type of practice results in high transfer, high performance, yields the best outcomes. Gladwell kind of ruined it because he just said, this adds up to 10,000 hours. Just do 10,000 hours of something and you'll be great at it. And Anders Ericsson, if, you, if you're reading the research, his argument came back to this point that there's got to be purpose, it's got to be desirable, and it's gotta be, there's got to be a level of failure that occurs 
So in, in all of these cases and all these tests and all these scenarios, and by the way, his research has been validated by hundreds of, of learning scientists since, the idea is that if you, if you are tested on something before you know it, yes, you will fail. You will struggle through it. You will be guessing. But the action of guessing leads to stronger, longer, lasting retention. It makes a, b- a deeper impact. Correct. It cuts deeper. So uh, it's called generative learning. We call it struggle-based learning, where if I test you on something, if you got hired tomorrow, Eric, you want to work at One Huddle for, you know, for the summer coming up, we'd put a game in front of you, and you'd play it. And you know what? First time you play it, you'd bomb it. You'd get like a 30% on it. You'd play it again maybe two days from now, and you'd get like a 40, 50. And over the next bunch of days, you, know, you, would, you would go up and down and up and down. Let's say you top out at 90%. If we turn the game off and wait 30 days, 60 days, 90 days and retest you, 90%. Your knowledge decay goes yeah. nowhere. Yeah. It dips a little bit. Because it's the repetitiveness of the guessing and, and finding the patterns. So it's this concept, by the way, that when you think about what it comes into leadership, struggle, failure, difficulty, we shouldn't run from it. Fragility is you know, fragility is bad for learning. So like literally being fragile is what you're saying. Fragility is bad. What do you mean by that? It means that being afraid of, of being in a scenario where a new employee gets a question wrong and feels bad because they got it wrong. Yeah. Like that's not a thing. You know, if you, if you create the right environment where you show people that through failure, you're getting better, Mm. which requires a coach, by the way, and it requires certain types of leadership around that person. Or it requires a game that rewards you even when you fail. Creates competition where, you know what, even if I'm not doing so well, I'm in the competition. I'm going to keep coming back for more. And I'm learning in the process despite the struggle that is uncomfortable or inconvenient for me. But the, the research is absolutely clear that one of the missing ingredients today in learning, which is why even K through 12, which everybody listening should care about this because – that's your future yeah. workforce uh, that has been standardized, tested to death. Only 10 years away, too. And not, <laughs> yeah, and not, not challenged. Yeah. And you know what? They've been taught through the same rote method. I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up in Miami. I took 12 years of Spanish. I still can only get into a fight, not out of a fight. Okay? Because what did I do? I sat through the lecture. Yeah. I crammed for the test. I took the test. And then I forgot everything. Yeah. I think I dropped... I found a way to loophole the mandatory language. I was like, I just don't want to do this. And like, they're like, fine, you don't have to do it. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I'm so along the, again, along this, the storyline, uh, the journey of a new hire. So you're kind of painting the picture. So we start taking this test. We're getting the same test over and over and over again. And we're seeing our score going up as we're becoming familiar with what the right answer is. Yep. And um, does it, does the story keep going? Is there more beyond that? So, in, again, in the game, as you're playing, uh, there's a bunch of stuff happening now behind the scenes. Because once we rolled it out, we realized, oh, wow, this is working. Uh, if for any other reason than the fact that the way, the way it would roll out is when you got hired, you would be put on a leaderboard against everybody else. So not only would the expectation be that for day one, you know, you got to win the game. So a leaderboard is literally just a board with a bunch of names, one through however many people are on the board. Put the whole, yeah, you can put your whole organization on a leaderboard. Then we have sub leaderboards by you know by restaurant location, by front of house versus back of house, so you can create micro 
competition. So you're hired, you get put on this board, and immediately you're at the bottom. You can see that where everyone else ranks. Yep. So now you're like, ooh, I don't want to be at the bottom. Right. So we're using competition to drive participation. Mm-hmm. And organizations layer in rewards on a weekly, monthly basis to inspire and, you know, reward, reward different outcomes, not just winning the leaderboard, but just the act of, of playing all your games is a reward. The act of being uh, winning different trophies along your journey is something that is incentivized by brands. So all of these different game mechanics we're using to inspire workers to level up and take the next job inside of the brand. Mm. You know, so again, when the game started, it, it was. It was a series of games. Once you completed onboarding, by the way, then you would see a game pop up every Monday on this week's menu. You would see a contest spin up every other week on something skill-related. By the way, a few weeks from now, you'll see all the games from onboarding again. Because just because you played it once doesn't mean you know it still. Yeah. So this concept of continuous was a foundational piece of the product. You know, you asked where we went next. I mean, we just sort of, we just jacked up all the, the kind of struggle-based learning concepts around the product. An example would be, as you play, questions will randomize and vary based off your learning behaviors. So mm-hmm. if me and you play in the same game, hired at the same time, you're going to perform better on some questions that I'm not and vice versa, the mix of questions you see every time you play are different for you than me, even in the same game, because you're going to get the questions you struggle with more frequently, Hmm. because what we're trying to do is close skill gaps rapidly by player. So we started to leverage AI and machine learning, you know, two, three years ago in the product to close gaps that we knew existed. Could a game, the same game, be easier for one person and then another person because of their skill level? It could be. Or their ability? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if somebody had different experiences, maybe somebody worked here longer, they had different events, uh, they would, um, they might be an adv- advantage in a specific game. Yeah. But, you know, again, a game is basically a deck of cards. If you've got a 50-question game on onboarding. Yeah. And the deck of cards is constantly being reweighted based off the questions either you're not performing well at yeah, uh, or the questions that are taking you too, too long to answer correctly. So just like sports performance, a perfect game is every question right in one second. Wow. And until that happens, nobody's perfect. Right. So even if you get everything right, we're going to take the question that took three, four, five seconds. Perfect will never happen, basically. You made, you made obtaining perfect impossible because yeah. uh, you'd have to be a robot or a computer to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You must be familiar. I'd be surprised if you weren't familiar with uh, The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. Have you heard? I haven't, no. Oh, really? No. Um, so basically, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, I mean, they get into a lot of this, like, it's the game of business. Like, what is the game of business? But they get into gamification in that. And they, they talk about the game, the, the, the idea of gamification and really just like looking. So in the game of business, you have numbers, like you have score, right? So like they teach people and the whole idea is like you teach people the game of business, how business works, basically things like open book management and like, you know, like the, the, the better we do, like the, if, you know, if we pay attention to the waste, and if we pay attention to uh, you know, breaking things or if we do things faster, like this is how we can affect the score. 
right? So in the great game of business, understanding the numbers of business, do you work that into the, the platform of, of training people like, hey, like, so now you know how to do your job, but now here's the, can, can you tie open book management into like, into the game where like you're sharing numbers. Like, do you know where I'm going with this? Like, how yeah, does that so it's, it's, it's funny. You, you know, it's funny you say that we have, we have our, you know, obviously we have to play the game two at one huddle. That would be yeah. a bad thing. So we have something called the game of the week. Okay. And the game of the week is on everybody's goals for the week. Okay. So you know that Monday morning meeting that everybody doesn't like to do? Yeah. And kind of everybody, you know, you go around the horn, everybody says what they're supposed to do and nobody's really paying attention. Well, what we do on one huddle is There's a, we turn everybody's goals into a game. Okay. So now and, the meeting is a game, so you got to pay attention. So no. So now the meeting, we can talk about more important topics. Okay. So there's, is there anything sillier in restaurants than the stand-up? What do you mean by that? Before service. Like the, 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 the pre-shift huddle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we're going around the horn and explaining you know, ingredients that exist in tonight's menu item that probably could be covered a different way faster so in with a lot of restaurant brands they'll take different communication that is important for tonight's tonight's service and they'll turn it into a game like that send it out to folks to play before clock in and then pre-shift huddle still valuable moment they can talk about and coach up higher order topics than just let's go around the horn and explain this and this and this and this and kind of the transactional topics. Yeah. So to your point on, can you use the game for, for goals and numbers? I mean, it's probably one of the most, uh, I would say it's probably one of the most popular kind of game that's played after onboarding is using games to communicate either uh, goals or performance data yeah. to the team and intertwine it into other types of of coaching and training that is important at that moment. Well, that's kind of where I was going. So like now, like say for servers, right? So now with this technology we have, we have so much data out there. We have data down to server performance, who has the highest checks, right? Who, who turns the tables the fastest. So you have all these touch points, all these data points specific to an individual. And now it's about outdoing each other. So is there a way to tie in say, like uh, toast data, right? like POS into ser- server performance into the leaderboard. So now you have people competing on how high their tickets, their, their, their average you know, check is and how fast you're turning tables and upselling specific items, right? Like how do you, you're shaking your head. Yes. So I'll let you get in. Yeah. So again, we're working on all types of integrations right now that especially in the restaurant space and the hospitality category, there's a lot of different technologies and POSs that we could be plugging into you know, at this moment, we have we have stayed on the side of the line that we are the strength coach. You know, so we're focused primarily on enhancing performance. Now, data from other places feeding into one huddle to affect what games we play next. So once is, you, yeah, you can create the game once you have the data. Right. So if we know that, you know, Eric is struggling with this specific topic, that topic connected to certain buckets of games could then be automatically turned on and sent sent to players. So those are the types of things that I would say we are, you know, working on. I think that some of that the industry uh, is maybe not ready for just yet. I think that the, if I were to look at the restaurant category as a whole, I think that the the function of training and coaching and development has a little bit more of a ways to go from a 
you know, I would say budgeting and support before that type of data will be valuable to the point of where I think a restaurant will pay more for for that yeah. function. But I think that's where we're going. I mean, it's already happening with us with we have we have contracts with the US Air Force, we have contracts with Amazon and Audible. Wow. And in those environments, they have robust functions around talent development. Yeah. And they are looking at data like you're mentioning, and making real-time choices around what are we going to do uh, to get people to competency faster and get them to performance quicker. And if they don't, there's probably you know offboarding that occurs. And I think that, the again, the restaurant industry is moving in the right direction there. It's just not there yet. But we're investigating it is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're still an, a growing, evolving company yourself. You're improving every day, I'm sure. Um, so what about manager pushback? Because um, I would imagine that the somebody has to create these tests, right? Like you, you don't these, – these tests just don't manifest. Games. Like, sorry, the games. Yeah, nobody you. likes to test, Eric. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> so these games just don't manifest. Like you don't just like have AI filtering through your operations manual, pulling together questions and poof. Here's a question. Somebody has to put that data in there and come up with the questions, right? Yep. Who does that typically? 70% of our questions today come from the frontline manager. Yeah. The other 30% come from whoever is leading the charge in training and development. So if it's somebody that leads operations or leads training and development at corporate, they'll be the ones building the games. HR. Uh, HR group. And then the other 70% are frontline. The authoring tool. So if I were to talk about the, the strengths of our product – it's the outcomes of the of learning using the games. The second is authoring. The, the speed the at strength which you is can, authoring. Authoring. Got the it. speed at which I can take concept and put it into a game and get it to my workforce is is one of the absolute strengths of our product. So when you say concept, you're saying an element of your business that you need to train. You work at Madison Square Garden, and you are the head of operations, and tonight Bruce Springsteen is performing, and they just decided to change which gate certain tickets can come in on. You can open up one huddle, build a question or a set of questions and answers, swipe right, and all of the folks that work frontline in that area of the arena will get hit with a game that they can play right now that's communicating that information. Uh, By the way, every game doesn't have to also be like this test motion. Some of it is straight up, hey, here's information you need to know, here's a short video attached, Here's a PDF you can read. So That was going to be my next question. Yeah, sorry. Keep yeah, going. so the game is a capsule, and you can still sprinkle all the stuff you have uh, around it. So you can put videos, you can put PDFs, you can put menus, you can put you know guides. But the, the core learning, obviously, is happening once you hit play game. So there's the Q&A form, which was one game, where you ask a question, they answer, and depending on how fast and how accurate their answer is, determines their score. Yep. What are the other games? that are associated with this? Are there different types of games within the one huddle, like different verticals of games to train? Yeah, so we have, again, we have the multiplayer game, which is classroom-based, like I mentioned before. Which is the the improv. And then we have a single-player game that's done on mobile. And that was the testing. or the the, Trivia. I shouldn't say testing. Yeah, trivia. Trivia. Yeah, so it's trivia. And then uh, those games are all the same format. Uh, And then there's a bunch of ways you can turn those games on. Like I could turn a game on in a contest and a contest creates competition across maybe a bunch of locations or a bunch of roles. There's a reward. There's Everybody only gets a certain number of attempts. It's We've amped up competition. Got it. I can also turn it on kind of like an onboarding game where you got to win so many levels in a row, and then you unlock a certificate, 
which we call a trophy. Or the next level of training. Yeah. And then there's just kind of free form where you can just turn a bunch of games on. People can play at will what they want uh, whenever. And it's sort of open. So the, But the ultimate format of game is this trivia capsule. We do that on purpose. One, again, all of our research has, has shown that testing and quizzing are that format of multiple choice is highly effective. We don't want it to feel like a test or a quiz because it yields different feelings yeah. from workers. So emotional. <laughs> yeah. So it's a game, you know, and yeah. I think that's also where we see the better brands that use us. You know, if I think about FB society, I mean, they just create competition like Jack and Co. They create competition in the, in, in one huddle, you know, doghouse, Hago, that, that group, they create, they make it important. They have fun with it. And, I'll see brands who they screw that up. You know, they come out of the gate and they say things like, test. everybody, you have to get your quiz in this week. It's like nobody wants to do that. Yeah, you just made it. Yeah, or so you, what, would the, what would the dialogue or the language look like that's ideal? Yeah, so it would say that we have this weekly competition. You know, we are, you know, we are Tau Group. And at Lavo, Las Vegas, every week there's a competition. Games go on on Monday. They go off on Saturday. Most points win, and uh, like is Tau Group using this? Yeah, I would love to get them on the show. <laughs> uh, maybe we can get a Tau Group and testimonial for you. And you want to see their spirit <laughs> games? Yeah. I mean, th- what are their games focused on for continuous? It's spirit again, knowledge. Spirit knowledge. It's service standards that come up a lot. It's again VIP information so that everybody knows what's happening tonight across the property. Yeah, and the fourth bucket is one that goes under appreciated today and i think certain brands get this you know i'm sure jack talked about his focus on um, you know mental health mm. and we know that in the restaurant industry there should be more of a focus on the things that happen before you clock in and after you clock yeah, out and clear outlets for you to communicate your mental health and i'm assuming this is probably where one hollow comes in well we have over 2000 games off the shelf think of it like netflix that you don't have to do anything to you can one-click coaches, can one-click and add it to their library. We have games on top business books. So like universal games, no matter what your restaurant is, this is an off-the-shelf game that you can use that fills in. Give me some examples that are on that shelf. Customer service games on you know books like Unreasonable Hospitality mm-hmm. because Audible is one of our investors. So we have all types of libraries of off-the-shelf books turned into games. Let's see that win-win situation. We have uh, Serve Safe training. Yeah. Uh, even though you know again it, you can't get Serve Safe certified on One Huddle because they have an embargo on that, but you can yeah. reskill on the Serve Safe topics because you can prepare for the tests. You got it. So yeah. it can be pre or post for reinforcement. We have games on uh, Black History Month. We have games on when it's Pride Month. We have a whole library of games on on Pride. So universal information that's not unique to your brand. You got it. Got it. Um, so one other thing before we start talking about the future of gamification and training in uh, maybe just empowering managers and things like this, um, what that looks like in the future. I had a guest on the show, Nick Cirillo. Um, we're talking about growth and like basically like he he looks at his restaurant as a university. And you and like basically as you come in as a you know a new hire you're essentially a freshman you know and you wear the freshman hat and you have the freshman shirt on literally right because uh, there's diff- they, they identify w- by the clothing like where I am on my my crog- my progress with this organization but the way he explains it is you need tangible lanes of growth so say you get hired with this company and um, you know hey like I'm making fifteen bucks an hour I want I really would like to be make, making twenty five dollars an hour okay great um, you 
take the, you know, you go through all this training and you take these tests or you play these games, I should say. Um, and then you get to the next tier. Now you're a sophomore and here's a whole new suite of lessons and courses and knowledge that you need to be responsible for. If you want to get to that race, if you want to get to that. So that's kind of how he looks at his, his, his organization is as a university where you're onboarding students and you're, and you're helping them grow. You're coaching them, you're educating them to the next level until they become as high as they can get, you know, whatever that title might be. Maybe it's a C-suite. How does a tool like one huddle play into that? Is that the, the classroom? Like what would that, like, how does that, how would it relate? Yeah. So it would be, or, you know, we would, probably support that strategy, which is a great one, by the way. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, the biggest problem in the workforce is that there are barriers to access to learning for workers simply because of either the way they look or the education educational background they came from. You know, so if you're a low-wage worker that doesn't have a college degree, there's only certain roles available to you. And those roles traditionally don't have the same access to mentorship, coaching, and learning opportunities that others do. Now, so right out of the gate, a structure where you're allowing every worker to compete regardless of job title builds a uh, not just a, a more fair, but a more robust workforce. Like anybody could be your next starter at any role if you're giving them the opportunity to learn and to access. So we share that theme on One Huddle. We advocate not just to our clients, but you know, here in Newark, I chair the tech task force for the Workforce Development Board for Ros- Mayor Ros Baraka. Uh, I sat on the Biden-Harris Workforce Policy Committee to talk constantly about labor issues around workforce access. And when you hear about a university concept like that, we would be used either pre-learning before training events, meaning that when you're a freshman, why not let them check out some of the sophomore stuff? Yeah. Well, let's see if they're going to do it voluntarily. And, you know, once I become a sophomore, well, we still have to reinforce the stuff I learned as a freshman because you got to continue to strengthen your foundations, you know. Uh, so one of the, the main ways are we advocate for companies to use the product is you use it as pre-learning ahead of an event. You use it as post for reinforcement and retention. And in certain instances, you might use it completely as the replacement of the training altogether simply due to all the data we have that supports playing a game is a faster way to competency than the eight hour, you know, eight hour a day, three day summit where you lock everybody in a room and you talk to them and hope that they don't, you know, fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think again, but that model is important for two re- you know, two reasons. One is it shows everybody that if you do this, you can get to this, yeah. which is again, a game mechanic. Yep. And then the second one is to, afford everybody the same opportunity because it's crazy that today in 2023 83 cents of every workforce dollar in america regardless of industry is goes only towards compliance and cover your ass training Mm. it's not skill building it's not personal it's not growth they go to fall don't fall off a ladder don't slip and fall Mm -hmm. sexual harassment that's liability yeah so are, you know, here's my challenge. Are we a skill building nation? Well, the data doesn't support it. Yeah. And brands right now, certain brands have to, you know, once you're aware of that, you can do something about it. But again, if the majority of your budget is going towards serve safe training and food safety training and, you know, it's it's and not towards professional development and career growth opportunities, then, you know, it's not just I think it's not just 
it's not just bad for our communities. It's bad business because yeah. you're not tapping into the full talent yes. skill and, of the people you have. And that's one of the biggest mistakes people make. They hire somebody to do a job and they never let that person they never find out what's beyond like just that person and that one thing they're doing. What, what, what more does this person bring to the table that we're not tapping into? But when you start asking questions and which is what you're doing, you know, naturally with one huddle is you're, you're asking questions or you're getting answers. I feel like you're, you're seeing where their strengths are. You're getting more, you're, you're trying to find out what's, what else is there behind this individual? Right. Um, so is there any other element of one huddle that we did not discuss yet? Um, a, a, like a, a feature or a functionality, that has been left out or just an idea that you were hoping we would discuss before we take another break and talk about the future? Well, I think that, you know, you said earlier, keep coming back to this theme of coaching and coaches rely on data. Coaches rely on information. You know, that feedback allows them the opportunity to turn around and bring their best selves to their workforce and coach them up. One of the things that we released about nine months ago was a feature that we call win rate. And this is sort of like our NPS score, right? You're familiar with the NPS model? Um, no. So net promoter score is a concept where on a scale from one, they asked this question, you've probably gotten it before, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer XYZ brand to a friend or family member? If you've seen that yeah. question, if you answer a nine or 10, you're considered a promoter, seven, eight, you're considered neutral, six and under, you're considered a detractor. The whole concept is that customer loyalty is best evaluated based off a person's intention to talk about you to somebody else. So instead of saying, what do you like? What don't you like? All these silly questions we asked to check out. They asked what this net promoter score concept was one question, one number, and we'll tell you how loyal your customer base is and came out of Harvard. So it obviously made a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> the last 20 years, it's been like a big thing. Companies invested in net promoter score training. So we were exploring how do we find our one metric that matters because we live in a sea of data, who's playing, when they're playing, you know, like 94% of our games happen off the clock. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that's crazy. I think that's a great thing. Certain lawyers will argue with us about I was going to say, I wonder if there's an issue with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, we, again, it's training people like to do. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're terrible, uh, terrible people for doing that. Um, but, yeah, we, we deal a lot with environments where we got to control gameplay within certain parameters. Uh, coming back to this one metric concept, we rolled out a metrics after five years of gameplay data. One of the things we were able to notice is that uh, when, you, when you get to a score on a game, Say you get a 90 on a game. After a certain amount of time, that number starts to decay. And we are able to identify when certain games start to fall below, kind of like your heart rate, mm -hmm. a dangerously low threshold, which makes training more predictive. So right now on one we have this metric called win rate. It's a number that flashes at you on the games that you pin as your most important. And it tells you, hey, Eric, this game on, you know, menu, right now it's a 60 across your entire workforce. Or it's a it's a 48 at this individual location yeah. in Newark. Yeah. And if you double-clicked on that number, it would show you a dashboard by person of what their win rate numbers are. And this, again, we're really excited about it. It's been a huge part of our success with the companies we're working with because they're able to, as HR or as frontline managers, wake up and look at a single number yeah, isolate. and say, you know what? That game is slipping. 
And they can either turn it on, which is one fix, or they can coach them up on it. Yeah. So I can come into my stand-up. That was my point earlier on picking on a stand-up. It's just it's such a valuable yeah. inst- opportunity yeah. to coach. It helps you direct energy to your weakest point. Like, where, like, what should we focus on? Like, well, where do we need to focus? Like, what's the data say? It's watching film as mm. a coach. Then think about the what's like. How does that translate to ROI, though? Like, think about that. Like, okay, your weight, you're, like training, obviously one of the biggest expenses, one of the biggest pain points of the restaurant industry. But if you can funnel that energy, funnel that money to where you need it the most, and just constantly look at the the the, the lower, the lowest performing elements, you can kind of keep it. You can constantly round it off. Yeah, I mean, again, it's powerful. Yeah, so again, if you can predict, and there's two things we're noticing from this metric. One, managers uh, are starting to make better choices about what games they turn on based off win rate. So they're they're picking games, not just, oh, let's turn this on this week. Let's turn this on this week. Let's redo this this week. They're using data to make better choices about what they should be coaching up. The second is that, we talk a lot about leading indicators and lagging indicators. You know, people playing is a metric. We believe that it is a leading indicator of the lagging, the leading indicator of if an employee is engaged or not. So there have been there are instances where you're seeing that you know Eric is playing ninety percent of his games, rock star, crushing it on the leaderboard, top fifty week over week, MVP. But then if, again, if we work together and then you fall off that leaderboard, what happens if you were, you know, for 30 weeks you were in the top 10 and all of a sudden you're in the bottom 200? Is Eric okay? What's happening? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's not being kosher. Maybe there's something, a bigger issue at home. You got it. Yeah. So that type of information rising up for coaches to say, you know what? When you start to check out of one huddle and you start to pull back, you're probably pulling back in some other places. And it's an opportunity to step in as a coach instead of when it's too late. And, you know, we've already seen this in multiple restaurant brands we're working with where, um, you know, we're pointing this out and they're able to step in and intervene and use it as an opportunity instead of, um, you know, just using using one huddle as a as a just a training tool to check a box. Yeah. So uh, I think people who are listening to this were really interested. I'm sure they're wondering how much. Like, what's the price point of this? And like, what, what what's your target market for like a restaurant group? I know some of the restaurants you mentioned are in like the ten to twenty range locations. And so it's is it is it in reach for your your multi like your two three four store multi multi unit operator or is it more for larger organizations? We have a price point for everyone, and that's one of those things. We've been very flexible. Today, Eric, 15% of our platforms go to social impact clients in communities that are nonprofits that have absolutely no training and development I feel like that's resources. every restaurant should be considered. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, again, we do work here in Newark. One of our partners is the Covenant House. They're um, a shelter for homeless youth. They have one person running all of their uh, you know mentorship and workforce resource programs. They use one huddle to work with, you know, 40 kids every day. Uh, so because of that, the product has been built to support any size restaurant. You know, pricing starts at you know, 500 a month, goes, you know, and ramps all the way up depending on the number of locations, the number of integrations, the number of all the fun software stuff, right? All yep. the how many games you want to build and so on. I think that if I were to identify who our target market is, I, mean, I think it's restaurants that want to be the best. Yeah. And that sounds silly to say, but there are a lot of brands we talk to who say something on the form we ask them to fill out before our first call. And uh, 
then we get on the call and they say things like, we just, you know, we were just looking at something that we can use as a, a plug-in to our learning management system to make it more gamified. Like, that's not what we're about. You are the, the, the system. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you get brands who, if they want to use us as an LMS, it's a fraudulent use of a product like ours. It's like buying a Lamborghini and driving around the street yeah. in, in New York. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the brands that do that always, um, they run into trouble. Yeah. Because so if you're not an LMS, how would you identify? What we're you do? coaching a development platform. Got it. That's you know, and I don't think the, the the. But you could be LMS too. You also solve the issue for LMS or the the your solution for LMS, but more learning management systems started. Uh, their first clients were colleges. So the first learning management systems were built in the early 2000s. They were built for universities to scale distance learning. Uh, When they ran out of colleges to sell to, they started selling uh, to corporations because a lot of the big executive MBA programs uh, were touching the learning management system. So then they grew into kind of Fortune 100, Fortune 200. And uh, from there, they've become popular Across As all. the technology improves. Exactly. But again, even the very definition, manage, management is performance limiting. Man, a management platform where you are just trying to put things so that you know you have them yields outcomes like we see today. 15% of workforce engaged, record number of churn. You know, I, I mean, how many isms have we come up with in the last, you know, great resignation, uh, Quiet hiring, quiet firing, you know, boss loss. I mean, the, the the moments of the last three to four years have happened underneath the 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 watchful eye of learning management systems. Yeah. They have been the platform of choice to develop the workforce. And I just if it was a candidate, you would elect it out of office. <laughs> That's what you would do. So I don't understand brands who wake up and say, We need an LMS. They tell me right out of the gate they're not a good fit for one huddle because it tells me that they're not thinking about how we how we think about a future of work where workers are developed. Yeah, that's that's our cue to take a break to thank our sponsors. And we're going to talk about the future of work and what that looks like and how one huddle fits into that. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, 
There is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And now... I want to get into the future. You already started kind of alluding into like, what does the future need is the, the future of all workplaces need. Um, so the, the mission here at restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. Uh, how do we need to transform in your opinion, being so close to this, this huge element of the industry of training and uh, you know, like coaching up the next generation of professionals. What do you see that's broken with the restaurant industry and how do we transform it? Transactional management. What does not, that mean? Not transformational. Transactional. Okay. So, what, what do you mean, transactional management? Looking at labor like their resources. Mm. I mean, just even look at the the very definition of the people uh, that, or the way that we talk about the people in our workforce, and the 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 words we use for the groups that are responsible for their coaching, their development, what their words? mentorship. Give me an example. What are the words? Human that is? resources is, a, is, is one. You know, if you, if, you went to, if you went to graduate school and uh, took a class in management and you bought the textbook back when you still bought textbooks, you know, the 24-chapter textbook, chapter 24 would be called human resources, be the very last chapter in the book. And when you open that chapter, it would tell you that the function, Eric, future CEO of Mega Brand, is – your fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder is to make sure labor does what it's supposed to do and stays where it's supposed to stay, doesn't rise up against you. When you say stays where it's supposed to stay, you're talking the percentage. I, I know. What I'm saying is I think that the human resource function as it was intentionally designed was a group that was focused on making sure that you acquired labor. These are the words they use. Individuals. Right. People, you yeah. know, right? Humans, right? Yeah, we're all in the same Souls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you acquire labor yeah. and then you uh, onboard it and then you manage it and then you offboard it. And if anything goes wrong along that lines, you got to offboard it a little bit sooner. And again, I think words matter. And I think these words have framed a function that has tremendous opportunity today in the workforce and is really needed not as a, a, a function of controlling labor, but of developing it. And you're seeing brands create roles like chief people officer, which I'm very excited about, and roles like uh, you know, chief culture officer and coaching and development roles. And these types of roles, I, you know, the hope is that they're framed in a way that they're thinking more broadly about how do we transform the employee experience, yeah. knowing that the guest experience – by law, could never surpass the employee's experience. It just can't. It's, yeah. it's like it's it's a scientific formula. So you you laid out the the old broken formula, right? Of you know, like you hire, you you get them in, uh, you manage, and then you move them out, or whatever exactly it is you said. Um, what's that look like in the transformative world? Will we go from trans, transactional to transformative? Yeah, you you have you would have a workforce that has the knowledge to perform the job, which means they know the what. They know what to do every day. They come into the role, box checked. They know what to do. They have the skill to do it. So the skill meaning they know how to perform it every day. Um, That 
can only come after you have a very strong foundation of knowledge, right? This, this is obviously an order. You've got to build knowledge base. Then you've got to teach people how to employ it. Then they have the motivation to do it. Because I think this is a, a, a miss in a lot of brands. Knowledge plus skill times motivation is the formula. So you can know what to do and know how to do it. But if you don't want to do it, it doesn't matter that you know it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fact. Yeah. Now, I can't remember what book. I think it, it's in uh, EOS, Traction maybe, or one of those books where he talks about like how do you promote uh, when, you're, when you're finding people that, like, like you said, they have to be able to do it. They have to know how to do it. And that last part is they have to want it because at the end of the day, if you're like, if somebody can do it and, and they're able to do it, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, their cup's not going to be full doing that job. It has to be something that, that sparks something within them, you know? Um, so keep on going along that vein. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think if what, when I think about transformational in the workforce, I, I think of that continuum netting out correctly your people with the strong knowledge base strong skill base that's continuously developing and the right motivation to do it and if all of those are aligned you're going to you're going to have a workforce that's going to be humming at the level it yeah. should be humming consistently yeah there's there are a lot of challenges today when we look at brands you have brands that have uh, you know, blockers to access so you mentioned the university example earlier that's great that's an outlier most brands that have blockers to access. What do you mean by that? It means that if any, if a, if your entire education platform is desktop based, I don't think everybody in your restaurant has yeah. a desktop at home. Yeah. If everything about your product, if everything about your onboarding is only done as an event. And you're not offering everybody the same coaching and development opportunities that you offer managers and other roles. You have created barriers to access inside of your workforce where certain people have an opportunity to access more education. By the way, this isn't just restaurants. It's a whole this is this is a workforce problem today. Only one in three. There's 165 million U.S. workers. Only one in three have a college degree. So two in three are walking the streets without a college degree. One in two workers are a $400 parking ticket away from poverty today, of which 80% are service sector. And they carry a lot of this into work every day and a lot with them home. And the fact that we have such an abundance of technology and opportunity to coach everybody up the same way, yet we don't, uh, can be seen in the fact that most training infrastructure, most coaching infrastructure is done in this trickle-down model. You know, you, you, you coach certain groups different ways. So I think there are blockers to access that exist today. Uh, some of these, by the way, can be solved legislatively. Uh, there, are, um, there are certain regulations that were written in the 1960s with the intention of protecting workers that have uh, in turn hurt them today. It's more common than ever that I'm on phone calls with in-house counsel talking about how they can use our product but not trip up a wage and hour rule uh, or not trip up some legislative uh, rule that exists that it's more often than not, it's not blocking them. But out of an abundance of caution, they may be fearful of what it will do. So not all of this goes on the shoulders of a, of a corporation or, or a brand. Some of this is been put on by you know our government, by, by government yeah. rules that that again at one point were written to protect a worker and today uh, again there are rules for example that say that in certain states if an employee does job training off the clock even if it's voluntary 
if they do it off the clock on their own accord uh, and it's offered to them by a brand, the brand is still liable to that as working time. Even if the worker says it's under my choice, they sign their everything off, I'm doing this voluntarily. So let me ask you, Eric, who doesn't get access then? It's probably the, the two and three that don't have a college degree that are getting impacted by that. It's the, the server, the dishwasher, the back of house person who's not getting it. Yeah. It's not the general manager. But do you think a college degree is as significant as it once was? Do you think that plays a role in this? If you have a college, if you have a four year degree today in America, you'll make a million dollars more in your lifetime. But is that the issue? Is that they it's put signaling. so much emphasis on a college degree? And I think today, really, what a college degree says to people is that you're able to start and finish something. I think that's really the only fucking value of a college degree, aside from what you learn. But you can learn that anywhere today. As long as you have the desire to learn it, you can get the information. Like, I think there's just antiquated old cultural issues. And it's just like, listen, this is a broken model. Like, you don't need a college degree if you have – that holds so many people back. So just, it's out of reach for a lot of people. I, I sit in Newark, sitting on the workforce board. If you were unemployed today, you would have to go you know, a mile down the street. You'd walk into a workforce center. By the way, that feels like a DMV. Yeah. Or probably only slightly better than most prisons I've walked into in my life. Mm. Okay. Uh, so that's probably not the best environment to walk into when you're not feeling good about yourself. So you walk in, you sign your name down, you meet with an academic advisor. They probably require you to do some SAT standardized test that makes you feel like who knows what. And then uh, once you get through that, they enroll you in a career technical program to learn to learn to prepare you to get you placed. You got to get a certificate. But to get that certificate, you got to get to a community college that's 20 minutes that way. Yeah. And you got to do it between the hours of six and nine at night. Now, just because and there's you're no at, public transportation, and just because you're out of work, yeah. we know this in the restaurant industry doesn't mean you're not working. Yeah. So getting there from six to nine is a puts all types of strain on your family, puts all types of strain on you uh, from a transportation perspective. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, since the, the where you're working only allows you to do training on a desktop on that bus ride, you can't really even yeah. get any of that work done so so what's the future look like if we're, this is what we're talking we're saying the old system is kind of antiquated it doesn't work we're talking about empowering businesses to train and coach people what's the natural progression here what do you think happens over time not just in the restaurant industry but globally or at least within our country so you mentioned college degrees and i would agree with you that the utility of a college degree is not what you know they sold a bill of goods that's a little inflated organizations and people, people have biases and it's easy for, it's easier for a hiring manager to look at a resume and make a decision based off something that's just like, let's jump right to the college degree line. So today it's a checklist item. Absolutely. It's a, it's a minimum requirement. Absolutely. And it just never got erased from the checklist. <laughs> and I think that this is where, what, you know, there's 940,000 crazy stat 940,000 formal credentials today globally. By the way, a four-year degree is only one of those. So there's all these like career and technical certificates and, and all these different programs that claim that you've earned a certificate. You know, LinkedIn learning is, you know, you could probably earn 100,000 of them on there yeah. that they give you. So I think that knowing that, that, that knowledge is currency for workers – and it, it's a hell of a lot worth – it's worth a hell of a lot more uh, for low-wage frontline workers, which, again, are one in two American workers. And 
to your question of where are we going for future of work, I think that you're going to see in a world, and I hope we're going to see this, I think you're going to see that if workers are going to be um, – if they're, if they're really going to be in a position to bring their best selves to work inside of brands, you're going to see restaurant brands and hospitality brands and service sector brands who, again, are 80% of this workforce stand up more and play a stronger role in the development of yes. the worker. Now, given the fact that when you do bad stuff, it spreads a lot faster than when you do good stuff in every day that hap- – you know, you're not quitting on – you're not complaining in a break room. You're quitting on TikTok now, yeah. right? So – I think brands, because of that, are starting to become more aware of what their um, reputation. What, yeah, what their exactly what their reputation is to their workforce. So again, I'm optimistic because I'm seeing it every day. I'm seeing you know two three years ago before COVID, we were talking to brands who said, "Ooh, this is a nice to have, not a need to have." Yeah, you look at you look at the history of the university, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of only a couple hundred year old thing. It was invented by industrial America to crank out employees. Um, and it just got universally adopted. But anybody who's alive today, that's just all we ever knew. It's just the way. And I think we're just blind to like, we're just kind of marching along. Like this is what you do. This is what we were told to do. And I think for a long, the longest time it's, it worked until about 15 years ago, you know, until that, and like, you know, that's when things started to change and the world we lived in really started exponentially changing to a point where like, it's kind of an antiquated broken model where it's holding us back if anything. And I think that as we march into the future, I think what you're going to see because, because what is a college? It's a place that has information and people. That's what it was in a network. That's what it was. Right. And a certificate that people trusted like we trust the value of a dollar bill. We trusted that paper, that degree that said you're capable of doing this. And it was just a system that we all agreed on. As we go into the future, I think you're going to see that. Listen, if I like what's like using Nick's Nick Cirillo as an example, his, his restaurant is a university. If you come to work for me, I'm going to get you to work wherever you're going. And the, the biggest aha moment I had as a guest of the show is the most successful brands are about growing people, about creating opportunity for people and putting people on a career path. And honestly, trying to push people out of their restaurant if, if their destination isn't within my organization. How can I help you get to where you're going? Who can I introduce you to? A restaurant is a university, you know? And I think it's just conscious, cons- like, it, what is it? Um, uh, I'm getting a little chilly, so it's hard for me to talk. <laughs> the air conditioning is nice in here. Uh, it's conscious capitalism, you know? And I think that the more opportunity, the more you're willing to give your people, I think, and as the perspective of people change and evolve, I think that's kind of going to be the what determines the brands that grow or die. There's, the a, con- there's a concept called knowledge spillover yeah. in workforce training. And the idea is that if you bring a high-tech company to a city like Newark and you attract folks to that place – even if they're not from the community, the hope is eventually they are from the community. But even if they're, you know, they're coming from Bergen County or New York or South Jersey and they're coming to Newark, what they're going to start to do is they're going to walk the street. And when they walk the street, they're going to start eating in places that they wouldn't normally eat. And they're going to get their haircut at a barber that they normally wouldn't get the, their haircut. And when they're, when they're sitting in that chair, they're going to have conversations yeah. with somebody that a conversation that person wouldn't have heard. And this spillover effect yeah. is the hope of what you do in a community. Now, I think when we think about the restaurant industry, my hope is that we create more positive spillover effects like you just said, yeah. which is if I leave one brand, I'm spilling over into another, but that takes the whole community supporting 
laterally, not just vertically within their yeah. brand. Think about how much public housing would open up if universities just closed. A lot of problems would be solved. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. This is me getting maybe a little too far outside the box. But before we wrap up, before we say goodbye, any final thoughts? Anything that did not come out of today's conversation? Is that a checklist of things you want to talk about today? No, it's checklist stuff I have oh. to do later. Um, <laughs> You're looking pretty good. You yeah, got a lot of that crossed off. I got off. a lot of crossed off. Yeah. I'm a check the box guy. Oh, yeah. uh, no, I, listen, I, I think that it has been one of the things that's really inspired me on a journey where in the last six years we've worked with brands across a dozen verticals. I mean, we we have, I mentioned Madison Square Garden, Lowe's Hotels, we're working with, worked with the Super Bowl, we worked with, we have the U.S. Air Force using us for very serious uh, tactical training right now. Our work in the restaurant hospitality industry has become, you know, close to 40% of our work. And, you know, I just think about, I had a call last week with, with one of our one of the training managers at a brand we work with and she was she was talking about a positive interaction that she had with someone in the back of house she had someone on the platform who was playing a game and one of the features in one huddle is if the player can chat back a question so if a question they get a question wrong they can give feedback and say hey eric i think this is wrong and this is why and that's a very f- powerful feedback loop from a learning perspective and a coaching perspective, and it allows you know the manager to respond to it. And this back of house person had responded and given some feedback, and the manager said, "I think sh- I think they're wrong. Um, I'm pretty confident they're wrong, but I'm going to go see them tomorrow." She had like an on-site trip planned, and she said, "You know, I went into the back of house and I was talking with this team member about it, and she's like, damn it, they were right.'" And she's like, I fixed the question right in front of her and, you know, coffee on me. And she's like, that to me is what was what, what's powerful about about the opportunity that we have beyond one huddle. But as an industry to listen and see the people on our front. Line, yes. To ha- not just walk past them. And I have this conversation a lot. You know, the person that's picking up. You're, you know, you might notice the server, but the person that grabbed you, you didn't miss a person that grabbed your dish off your off your, off the table. My hope, but what inspires me about the restaurant industry is this opportunity to see a corner of our workforce who, um, you know, it's like the people that are paid the least. They pay the most today mm. in the American workforce. They pay it in a variety of ways, and whether they're whether they're just stopping at your brand for the moment on a path somewhere else or they are going to turn it into a real career, which I'm all of us probably hope that's yeah. true in a pathway. I mean, damn, that's the opportunity. And that's my, my, I, what inspires me every day when I talk to the right managers who are the ones that see it and recognize it. And, you know, don't always find the wrong things. They, they seek out opportunities yeah. for positive feedback. I think there's going to be a rush of, of individuals to the hospitality industry in the near future, and people who are hearing this must be like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" But if you think about where we're going with technology, like the the, the skill based jobs uh, are going to be going away. Like that's going to be replaced with technology and automation. And um, at the end of the day, when people go to a restaurant, they're they're looking for a human connection, and AI can't provide that yet. You know, you in 
I think that there's this, there's going to be a lot of opportunity within the hospitality industry as the world continues to automate. I think there's going to be a wave of people coming back. So they're going to, we're going to automate the repetitive low complexity. Yeah. And some people will say, well, hey, you know what? Working the line is low complexity. So here's my answer: <clears throat> make it fucking complex. Yeah. There's opportunity to make these roles mm-hmm. more complex. There's opportunities. Uh, to enhance, and that's why I said, like you know, to, to just train somebody up on what the ingredients are in the poke bowl today is is not enough. Yeah, there's opportunity to coach to a higher order. You mentioned, uh, you know, we talk about personally, positionally, and professionally. Those are the three keys you got to focus on if you really want to be a coach. And I'm working with you every day, and it's not the the positional stuff is where there's too much focus. Yeah. Sam, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much. Uh, I learned a lot today. I'm excited for where you go and how this company evolves. And I think there's tons of opportunity here. If uh, we really enjoyed today's conversation, we want to learn more about One Huddle. Where's the best place to go? Go to uh, the number one huddle.co. One huddle.co. And who do you respect and admire in the restaurant industry? People who are doing it right. Maybe people who are using your, your tool and are using it really well. Uh, who are those people? Who should I get on the show to kind of share, continue to share what's going on here? So have you had, you've had Hago on? I've had said? him on the show, but you know, maybe we can come back to him in the future. I like Hago. They're doing some awesome stuff right now. Yeah. And I, w- I, w- I would highly recommend Hago and Doghouse. I mean, that's a brand that they wake up every day and it, truly it's in their DNA uh, to care about leveling up people and across the brand. So I, I think you should have Hago on. Yeah, I think it would be cool if he's down. I think I'd like to get him live in the network or like some type of like Zoom call where maybe we can do like a Q&A and like how it's like the how it's affected his bottom line and the success he's having with it. If you're well, if you're interested in joining that conversation, we'd love to have you there too. Um, and any other final things before we say goodbye? That's it. Um, well, there is no questioning, Sam. You are unstoppable. Thanks, Thanks Eric. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Sam Cayucci. And man, I love what's happening over there at One Huddle. Uh, This is the kind of stuff that gets me really excited. Uh, The the study of human behavior, how we function, the way we operate, really just figuring out how we work and just diving deeper. I think there's so much to be unlocked behind that code. Uh, And we can, if we can figure that code out of how we work and and leverage these lessons to go with the grain of human behavior to, to find a more streamlined way of doing things in business. And I think that really that's what it comes down to is success in business increases. The more you know how we work, why we work, the more you know about people, the better you do in business. Business is all about relationships and understanding people. And um, this stuff gets me super excited. So awesome. Thank you again to Sam Cayucci. Super excited to be following you guys and seeing where you're going. And if you're enjoying today's podcast and you want more like it, we need your support. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. Uh, This is whenever a tool or service is recommended on the show. And uh, One Huddle does have an affiliate program. you know, I don't think we're officially popped off with it yet, but uh, I think that you know, if, if they can see that uh, this podcast has traction, then they, you know, 
might be willing to do some shit with Restaurant Stoppable. So, you know, use our links. Let our, our affiliates and our sponsors know that this podcast has impact. Share this thing with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And, you know, come hang out over at Restaurant Stoppable Network. So the whole idea behind the network is to connect my listeners with my guests around this idea of sharing knowledge and supporting one another in uh, just paying it forward to the next generation and going into the future intentionally not reacting to the status quo. So if that sounds appealing to you, head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com, be a part of the conversation and support this mission. And I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make the show possible. Thank you so much to Jared Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for the copywriting and editing of the show. And thank you to Sam Hall at savinsam.com for the videography and the social media and for following my ass around the country. I cannot do it without you guys. I'm so grateful. That's it for today. Until next time. Peace out.